Welcome everyone, I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana, and we're here at 318 Latino Studios for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home, and I can't wait to have today's discussion. It's with someone I've known quite a long time, it's Jan Sol. Jan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I can't wait to tell everyone about you and to hear from you. So. I'm gonna hop in there. Um, Jan, you're involved in numerous aspects of our community with a focus, I would say, on education, our environment and outdoors, and just an overall effort to strengthen Shreveport Bossier by providing healing knowledge and activities for our residents. Mm. Let's start today, and we'll cover a lot of ground. Let's start today with your interest in the Red River? Mm. And this is a long question, so hang in there with me. So like many of us, growing up, you were told to stay out of the river because it's dirty and dangerous. We are so fortunate to have a river that runs right through the middle of our city. So my first question for you is, why are we underutilizing and undervaluing our river while cities like St. Louis, Austin, Little Rock and Oklahoma City have embraced their rivers and used them to transform their downtown areas and city centers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think it's, it starts with the perception of the river, like you said, being dirty and dangerous. Um, there is some truth to that, <laughs> um, but all it takes is a little understanding and we, we, you know, we, we fear what we don't know, typically. And so to understand the river better would, one, um, we'd understand that the dirt is literally dirt. It's really important sediment that's on its way um, to the Gulf, where there's active land building, where the Red River runs into the Atchafalaya, which runs into the Gulf of Mexico. There's only two places along the whole coastline where there's active land building happening, and one of them is Chafalaya Bay, which has a large part has to do with the, the Red River. Um, it's the whole reason the city's here. You know, it deposited some of the most fertile soil in the world right here. You know, so to understand that when there's current, it's gonna be carrying sediment then all of a sudden you can look at it and be like, oh, go baby, you know, there goes that sediment that we need so much. Um, so that's number one. And you'll see that, you know, during the summertime when, when the river has reached pool stage um, because of the locks and dams, when the river slows, the sediment drops out and you're looking at, you know, water that you can, has clarity, you can see two to three feet down. So that's one piece of it. <clears throat> The dangerous piece, of course, we have flooding events and such like that. Um, when we do have current, you've got to know about that. Um, and really, that is just um, one is it's having the knowledge, but also the skills. Um, if you are going to be on the river when there's current, how to do that safely. So when I came to Shreveport, um, as in high school, I didn't have the knowledge uh, or the skills. And so just like everybody else, I was, I was told, you know, um, to stay out of it. And 
and I was fearful of it, and so I did. Um, except I had this family friend who was into water skiing. And every once in a while, we'd have a conversation. I wouldn't see him very often, but when I did, it didn't matter the time of year. He had always been out water skiing, and I was just like, well, you're not supposed to do that, you know? Um, and he tried to tell me, but he was just one person at that time. No, really, it's okay. It's okay. So obviously he knew what he was doing. And he was skiing on uh, the Red River. He was skiing on the Red River. Okay. And so then when that was my first aha, okay, well, maybe there's something else to this. Um, you know, and then certainly um, since then, uh, you know, I'd heard about the uh, Bass Pro having their, you know, annual competition on the Red River. So then it, then it became not just a thing about... Um, knowledge and skills but also access and like who has access to this water well I move away from Shreveport and I go up to Minnesota and I get there via the Mississippi River so there's a thread that runs through all of this for me with rivers um, and become a um, kayaking instructor through the American Canoe Association so now I'm learning about rivers and the hydrology and and then I'm developing the skills and I come back to Shreveport after having followed these rivers now and having also spent time in Austin and seeing kind of like like we said that you know there are these cities that have made these rivers the, the centerpiece you know Austin for those that have been to Austin and Town Lake in the middle it's there's activity going on all the time around that so Came away fact, from. Let me interrupt. One yeah. Second. In fact, I can't think of another city, and I'm sure there are, but I can't think of another city in America that has a river of this magnitude running through the center of it that's made less use of it that's than it. we have. That's right. That's I can't either. I can't either. Um, and so, kind of came back with those things that I didn't have the first time I was here. Um, thinking about access who's got access why do they have access um you know and then and then everything else we've talked about so i came back and just realized for one on a personal level how much i and i'll just say it have has have needed that as an outlet for myself um recreationally um it's just where i feel connected um and um and then have really tried to start addressing that perception um, and that lack of access. Um, and that looks like trying to get people out in boats um, as often as I can. Um, and then taking, I should have brought one, but taking these little jars around, these little glass jars, and when you shake it, you've got the red the color of the Red River that everybody is familiar with, give that about 30 minutes and all that sediment falls out and you've got this completely clear water sitting on top of sediment. My, my students are shaking it all the time in the classroom. Um, and we go every summer um, for camp, we go and collect new jars for the campers just so we can keep that 
um, that that conversation going. I'm gonna interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Because this next question is a little repetitive, but it may add a slightly different color to what we're talking about. So we hear a lot here about how do we attract more people in companies to Shreveport Bossier? We also hear a lot about how do we get more residents to feel comfortable spending time downtown? In that same vein, my question for you, and I really think it's an important economic development subject is simply how do we get more people on the Red River? Yeah, well, um, one of them right now is we've got two boat launches um, and they do serve Shreveport Bossier, but you get outside of those boat launches and access is very difficult to find. Um, I'll give you an example, and I can't confirm this yet because, but I have a very uh, a good friend of mine. Um, there's a sandbar here in town, and we call it Eagle Bar um, because we've seen a bald eagle. This is right near the casinos. This is just between here and um, Stoner Boat Launch. And for those that don't know, that's only about a mile from downtown to Stoner Boat Launch. So between that there, you get on the river and um, you're seeing the city from a completely different angle, and but you're also seeing a ton of wildlife, um, and there happens to be a bald eagle that perches on a on a tree um, right above a rail, railroad trestle, um, and therefore we call it Eagle Bar. Well, that Eagle Bar is um, has been a place where. Locals go to fish, locals like me go to swim across the river and back. Um, and when I have taken students out, those camps, we go to Eagle Bar. It's a place where they can safely get in the water. Um, you know, some of them actually now, um, all of them are wearing life jackets at all times just because that's part of the agreement that we have worked out with parents. Um, and it's, a, it's a, just a place where they can frolic in the, in the river. Apparently there's a, a new sign up saying, keep out. Have not been there, but I just got that text from that friend uh, yesterday. Um, and who's that coming from? I don't know yet, but I, but It does not surprise me, um, and I'll, I will have to look into that, of course. But part of the 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 conversation here too is that when you go to that sandbar, you feel as though, like, am I is it okay to be doing this? Am I supposed to be doing this? Um, and it's kind of it feels like a guerrilla style operation, and that's really the way that it is, kind of down the river. It's like we're having to sneak down there to make use of this thing. Um, and why is that? I, well, um, I think historically the river has not been a safe place for many. Um, and so that helps kind of keep this perception going. Um, and but do you think there's not someone who wants that perception to continue? I mean, do you feel? I mean, there's not someone out there who 
you know, I, I want to. I'm, I'm trying to keep our residents from making more frequent use of the river. Right. There isn't. There isn't a, a body or a, a group of people that feel that way. In your opinion, is there? I don't. I don't think so. I think it just seems. It, it seems to be this um, kind of accepted truth, for lack of a better way of saying it. You know, and I. And I think that it's just kind of, or a myth, <laughs> not that might even better accepted myth that really I'm trying to dispel. Um, I know there was a time when the water was up, there was current, um, and I feel perfectly comfortable in current. And all I was doing was going to ferry my canoe from one side of the river to another larger sandbar on the opposite side um, with my kids. Um, and I, we had not been parked probably five minutes and I'm unloading and sheriff department shows up and, and I'm looking at whitewater that I'm used to being on. And then I'm looking over at the river and thinking, there's really not much to be concerned about here, but I just think that there have been a lot of, um, to be fair, there have been accidents on the river, and a lot of times they are, sometimes they're they, a result of poor judgment, drinking, um, also, and then who, um, and then I'll just say it, those that can swim and those that can't, and they're the, those that wear life jackets and they're those that don't. Um, and so um, those get a lot of, the accidents get a lot of press. That's for sure. They get a lot of press. Um, but your overall, just to be clear, your overall feeling about the river is it's very safe. It's actually relatively clean. And we should embrace it and we should be utilizing it far more than we are. Absolutely. This is, it's something to be completely respected, without a doubt, but not feared. And it's the fear just comes from what we don't know about it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to shift for a second, just because, yeah. like I said, you're involved in so many different things. So since 2008, uh, I think that's right, you've taught at the Montessori School of Shreveport and been deeply involved there, including starting the Coates Bluff Nature Trail. Talk to me about how you first became involved in this beautiful expanse of nature right in the middle of our city. Mm. Yeah, that's a really fun story. I don't get to tell very often, so I appreciate being able to do that. So I was living in a neighborhood, South Highlands, and um, at the bottom of the street was a concrete, concreted ditch that I did not know the name of. This kind of is a... Uh, speaks to how I grew up as well because I grew up in Los Angeles and I grew up um, less than a mile away from what we called the LA wash which was a concreted a much larger concreted ditch and very much like the river here and very much like the ditch we were just told to stay away from it um, and again there were stories you know it got circulated all the time. 
come to find out that that was the Los Angeles River. I found that out when I was, it's, I'm embarrassed to say, but I was 20 something years old going back to Los Angeles. Today as an educator and, a, a, and what I call, like to say is a, a place-based educator, like I, I just can't believe it, but it's a perfect example. Los Angeles River is the whole river, the whole reason for the city being there. Same like, same, same here. So back to South Highlands and this, at that time, this uh, nameless ditch, just call it the ditch. Well, I'm riding my bike back and forth along this ditch every day to this school that my kids are going to. And when we get there, there is a, um, we call it, we, it looks more like a pond today. So there's a pond across the street from school. And with my background um, in water, I'm just drawn towards it. So my son and I, that's how we start most of the days, um, as a, him as, as a toddler, going down to the water's edge. And he's pointing out, you know, the turtles and um, occasional ducks and stuff like that. And I'm looking at the trash and um, decades worth of dumping. And the, really the, the school at that time was just kind of trying to ignore the fact that this thing was here across the street from school. Um, but again, as an educator and with my background, I just thought, oh my God, what an incredible um, possibility, what potential here being right across the street from school. So I tried for a couple years as a parent volunteer to kind of start cleaning up and really was not getting anywhere. Um, I had one other dad who I happened to, you know, we, he felt the same as I did and we were working together and making very little progress. I then got hired by the school um, to work in the middle school as a teacher's assistant and adventure coordinator. That's part of the Montessori curriculum. And, um, and I immediately, so I was asked to uh, organize the orientation week and our team building. Well, nothing better than, you know, canoes for that. And so we pulled together from canoes from, from different sources to make that happen. And the very first thing we did was get on that pond which is um, one segment of these different uh, segments that lead back to the river. Total guiding question, what's the story here? Like, are these- For people, just orient people, for people who aren't familiar where Montessori yeah. is or where this okay. trail is. Yep, is all right, so this is on, um, if you're on Uri Drive, um, you're just north of King's Highway there's uh, Max's Pawn Shop is on the corner of East Washington and Uri. So if you turn um, and you go east on East Washington, you go a block in, you're gonna have Poppin' Company, a real popular burger place. Caddy corner to that is Montessori School for Shreveport. And it sits on the dividing line between Stoner Hill neighborhood and Anderson Island. Um, and that water is actually that old channel, I'm not getting ahead of myself, but that, that pond um, is, is also the parish boundary. 
the old parish boundary between Caddo and Bossier, when the river used to go through there. Okay, so we paddle back to the, to the river um, for our adventure trip. The question is, what's the story here? Are these man-made? I have no idea. So we begin researching. And at that time, the LSU had just opened their archives. And I went to a map room one day and the staff were super excited because I think I must have been one of their first, you know, patrons. And they start bringing these maps. And the history of the old river starts slowly unfolding until I realize that what I've been riding my bike along was Bayou Pierre. Now there's a sign for Bayou Pierre, but it's downstream. It's where you cross over um, 70th. There might be one at Burt Coons. I don't think so. I think it's just 70th. There's not one at the Ockley Street Bridge, which is where I was familiar with walking. Okay, so I've been riding my bike along Old Bayou Pierre, the same bayou that's across the street from the school. But in uh, actuality and in my brain, they had no relationship to each other whatsoever. Yuri Drive came right through and severed. Well, historically, that old uh, bayou was the preferred detour around what people know here as the Great Raft, the old log jam. So all of a sudden, we have this incredible historical significance. We then find out that the first trading post and the first post office and all these things are located along this old bayou because of that, it being the detour around the, the log jam. So we had that going for us and the students, we put together a presentation that they started doing. Um, they did one for, an, organiz uh, an, an organization called Bayou Chapter of the Ozark Society, and they liked it so much they asked us them to do it at the for folks at the Red River National Wildlife Refuge and fr the friends of. Anyway, now we had been on it. We had experiential. Uh, we had had uh, experienced it, been on it, had direct contact with it. Now we have knowledge of it. Oh, this played a really crazy important role in this in the life of the city, and so then. Do you want to do you want to quickly explain how Henry Miller Shreve kind of? Or sure. Are you getting there? Do you want to? Yeah, I can do that now. Or yeah. um, okay, so so we've got this preferred detour around the the raft, and I should tell I should say somewhere I'll sprinkle in there, and if I forget to come back to both of those, remind me, but. While I'm living in South Highlands and every morning going down and walking my dog around the channel, the paddler and the person that's just come from Austin, Texas, where they talk about watersheds, I've brought all of that with me to Shreveport. And I'm thinking about this in terms of a watershed. Where does this water go? Where's the water coming from? Did I see flowing under Ockley Bridge? And then where does this water go? 
And I spent about a year exploring a little bit down, downstream, finding out that Bayou Pierre downstream from Shreveport, once you get past the trash dams, these are, if they start with organic debris that then catches the trash that washes through our city. And there's a bunch of them and they're, they're massive and everybody should know that. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Once you see the trash wash through, where's it going? Don't know. I'm not sure. Gone. I'm, it's out of my mind. Okay. Well, as soon as you get past Flournoy Lucas, the concrete stops. That's where the trash, then all of the vegetation and, and which is fantastic. Um, as a filter, it starts catching all of the trash. And you have these trash dams, about one every mile or so, for about 25 miles down. And I found all of that out because I had started doing some exploring downstream, and then I was just like, I gotta go. So I put in at Ockley Bridge, and I eventually, it took me because when you of- you say you put in, you put your canoe I in. literally put in at Ockley Bridge, yeah, in about six inches of water. And that's where the trip started. Um, and ended up taking that, that was back in 2011. Um, and it took me three um, one-week trips, but eventually came out at the Gulf of Mexico. So took Bayou Pierre all the way back to Natchitoches. And then from, uh, and then the next leg was from Natchitoches to Simsport, which is where the Red River becomes the Atchafalaya and then the last leg was from the Atchafalaya to the Gulf. And just to come circle back around, and I feel like there's lots of loose ends now, but to circle back around when we talked about the Red River and the land building process, I have this picture um, that one, I, on that um, second and third leg, I had somebody with me for those trips. And my dear friend that I also teach with at Montessori was on that third leg with me. So he took a picture of me and I'm standing about a half mile off of the shore and the water comes up to my, below my knee, you know. And so there's the land building. And when you get to the Gulf, you see these islands with trees on them, you know, and you're, and you're kind of like, are we there yet? Are we in the Gulf yet? I can't really tell, <laughs> you know. And, and so at one point he said to me, well, how will, how will we know? How will we know when this is over? Because this had been my big thing now for like, gotta get to the Gulf, gotta get to the Gulf. And I was like, I don't even know where the Gulf is. Like, it just keeps going, you know, this land. It's just, it's incredible, the building. Okay, so where were we? Just tell me, tell, tell people out there who don't know, like Coates Bluff. Right, and, and okay. So, that's part of this story though too, is me wanting to take this trip because then when I got to the point of where Bayou Pierre branches off of the Red River, they don't, there's, there's, there's no definitive answer when this log jam started. Some I've heard as early as like 1100 AD. For a long, long time, people, Native Americans, explorers, um, 
you know, all of these people have been taking this detour around the, the raft. Right there at the junk, you know, making that just like, oh, oh, that's not going to work. Let's go up this way by you, Pierre. Okay, so um, Captain Shreve, he um, comes along in the uh, 18, early 1800s. He's been doing work um, out east, and he's developed this thing called a snag boat which is a boat that um, is designed to take this log jam apart. And he goes and he gets money from Congress. A lot of people think he's absolutely nuts. No way he'll, he's going to be able to do this thing. And he just very systematically starts working his way up. The river, because of the nature of the river, it's a very shallow, meandering river. And so if and when we do have flood events at that time, you know, more logs would come down. So what happens is, is at, at the um, at the bends of the river, where the river eats away at the outside bank, that's where it'll eat away the bank to the point where a tree will fall in, and if that gets swept downstream, it contributes. So the 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 log jam was always kind of shifting and stuff like this, but and it really was somebody who finally somebody else who finally cleared it in the late 1800s, once and for all. But he was definitely the first, and he made, it was incredible what he was able to do. When he got up here close to town, um, not only did he clear the main channel, but he was also engineering these cutoffs on the river. And these cutoffs would shorten the river, the, the distance that you had to travel on the river because of this meandering the river would do, these big turns. Well, one of those cutoffs he did, some say in the middle of the night, I have heard that legend, I don't know for sure, um, but he did that um, on the bend that flowed in front of Coates Bluff. And by then, there was a competing trading post here in downtown Shreveport called Bennett and Keynes. So he had invested some money in that trading post and um, then starts clearing the main channel, does this cutoff on the river. Coates Bluff literally finds itself high and dry. Bennett and Keynes becomes the only game in town as far as trading posts go. That then became Shreve Town, which then became Shreveport, right? So it's a really fascinating story. Um, before that actually happened, the first post office, in f and, and it was there for all of one year. I don't even think it was a whole year, actually. It was in 1838. The first post office in all of North Louisiana was located at Coates Bluff. Um, it's just to you know, give some uh, sense of how much it was established and on the map at that point. They were receiving shipments in New Orleans from Coates Bluff, Louisiana, that nobody had heard of Shreveport, you know. Um, so there's a representation of that post office that can be found in our main post office on, on Texas Avenue. Um, if you go in there and look, um, when you get in there, there's a, uh, a representation of that building in there. Um, 
So tell me, tell me what the, tell me, tell me what the status is. Well, tell me first, how can can the public access Coates Bluff Nature Trail, and just we're we're gonna get into some of the friends of Coates Bluff, but before we do, just tell me kind of when the trail was formed. Yeah. And just, okay, great, thank you. Because I forgot to talk about that cleanup that happened, and so middle school students we do have the outing um we start learning about it now we have a whole lot of reason to clean it up and so we organized a community cleanup and really did um the numbers from that are still staggering and it for me it was um a complete shift here's something i've been trying to do on my own for years and then all of a sudden you get this group of 100 volunteers together and working collectively to do something physically that we could not do on our own. But even more um, of a takeaway was the doing that work on my own or and with one other feeling very um, overwhelmed, dejected, um, versus four short hours, 14,000 pounds of trash, a complete party atmosphere. Like, and that was the big takeaway, like doing this collectively, doing it together, like, um, uh, so after doing that cleanup, um, we then went and talked to the city um, because it starts, the trail really starts, you're on, on easement on city property. And then you're on state property because it was once a navigable waterway. Um, so the trail, the reason why the trail is where it is today is and it, it really hugs this old Bayou Pierre. And the reason for doing that was because at the time we were creating the trail, we were trying really hard not to be on anybody else's property. We were trying to stay on state land. Um, and so that's, people will say, well, why, why doesn't it wander off a little bit more than, but one of the, the beautiful things about the trail today is that you are walking up the old river channel. Um, so students, we just, uh, last week, instead of walking and staying in the um, the old channel, we went on a secret trail um, that is not groomed for the public. Otherwise, all these trails are, and I'll tell folks where they can find this in a minute, but we went on a secret trail that took us to the top of the bluff. And from here, we did this whole narrative about Okay, what did this look like 300 years ago? What did it look like 200 years ago? 100 years ago? Um, and very different. Um, it looks very different in each one of those. Today, um, there are a couple of different access. There's three main access points. One is you can come um, and park on the weekends in the teacher parking lot at the Montessori School for Shreveport, and actually in any parking lot. Um, and the trail 
um, literally starts right across the street from school. You can also access it on the north side um, at Valencia um, Recreation Center. Also, Which is right next to Magnet High. Right next to Magnet High. You can park there. Um, and it's in the corner of the softball, the Magnet softball field right there. There's another gate and entry. You can also access it in um, through, it's called River Oaks Neighborhood. And um, they have uh, River Oaks Drive. It comes to an end and the trail picks up and comes in through there. All right, I'm gonna stop you for a second. So yeah. it is. I'm gonna tell people out there. I've I've been fortunate. I've never been on the trail with you. I don't think, but I Robert Trudeau took me on okay, it yeah. once, and it's a phenomenal trail. Anyone listening, I can't recommend enough that you go there and spend a couple hours. It'll completely hmm. transform just your your daily interaction uh, in town and and make you experience our community completely differently. So I'm gonna stop you there for one sec. I wanna. Yep kind of talk about where we're headed with the trail. So yeah. uh, Dion Procell Brown, who's a close friend and collaborator of yours, once said the following. If we want folks to love Shreveport, to care about this place, then why wouldn't we protect the area where the first settlement and trading post and post office was? Why wouldn't we take care of the oldest African-American cemetery that's right off the trail? So my question is, tell me about the Friends of the Coates Bluff Nature Trail and your current efforts. Okay, that's a, that's a great question. It, you, hers and yours, but hers, that's a, why wouldn't we? I mean, I feel find myself asking that question often. Um, okay, so in 2021, since 2009, 70% of the land within the watershed of Old Bayou Pierre um, and Montessori has been developed. Um, there was a time back in 2009, I always tell this kind of short, funny story, there's always been interest by mountain bikers about being able to go from Uri um, and in particular, this group was coming from Centenary. So they were really excited to be able to ride from Centenary, use the trail to then connect with the stoner bike trails. Okay, and you can do that by going, there's an underpass going under um, Clyde Fan. So super excited, can we do this? Yes, we can do this. We need to do it on the high side of the trail um, because the low side, you're actually walking up the channel, it's very sensitive. So we gotta do it on the right side of the trail. But anyway, so we're out kind of making our way. And at that time, you it was woods, a lot of woods, a lot of inner city woods. And one of the centenary students turned to me and he said, do you get cell service in here? <laughs> but it had that kind of a feel to it, like, whoa, now. Today, like you said, you can still get that feel of that tra being transformed. You can still step off of the street across from Montessori and within 100 yards just be like, whoa. And with students, that's so important. And for all of us, it's so important. For me personally, living in that neighborhood, I've told people this in some ways has been a very selfish project. This is what I need to live in Shreveport. I need access to places like this. 
So in, it, it has, there's a big... And you're not alone. Thank you. I don't think I am. In fact, we know that people actually need this, whether, you know, and whether we're completely aware of it or not, um, it shows up when this whole nature deficit disorder, that's something that I'm super familiar with, with kids and adults. Um, so it's a, it's a vitamin we, we all need and, um, and access is, is really critical for that. And it needs to be in places that where it can be walked to. That's, that's a big piece. Um, and that's why I feel so strongly, I feel strongly about Coates Bluff historically, ecologically, but socially and recreationally. This, this trail connects four neighborhoods and three schools by walking access, um, which is so important, you know. Um, the third so, school, just so people know, is Magnolia, just if people are trying to place, how does it connect three schools? So. Right, and it did, and we had four. Stoner Hill, when Stoner Hill was still open. Right. Um, but to your question, how the friends come along, we were just a Facebook group. We all, you know, um, were in love with this undeveloped piece of land, trying with other organizations, established nonprofits in town. Um, there was one called A Better Shreveport, which had a role to play in the early development of the trail. And as the wood started being purchased and and then developed, tried to have a say in not if it got developed, but how it got developed, and pointing towards things like the Katy Trail um, in Dallas, like, hey, this is an amenity. This is something we all need. Let's develop it so that it, it turns towards the trail and, and recognizes it that way. Well, we were unsuccessful. Um, and then came the Coates Bluff Apartments. They too cared about the history. They have definitely incorporated more green space for sure. So that was an improvement. And as far as, and then came Magnolia Charter School. Well, that what that left was the last undeveloped parcel of woods. It's 48 acres, and it is directly adjacent to the trail. And um, unfortunately, in, in our area, it's not just the question of why or if things get developed, it's, it's how. It's how it gets developed. Um, and so if we were to kind of follow the trend, I'm afraid that if those woods were purchased and developed in the way that things are typically developed here, um, then it would obliterate that trail experience. You wouldn't be able to walk 100 yards, 200 yards down the trail and be in a different place um, physically and then emotionally. It, it's, it has that effect. It has a very calming effect. And I've taken people that have lived near the trail or lived near the woods their whole life and have never been on it have taken it, you know, taken them on it right here in the inner city, and I, those comments are just keep coming. They just keep coming. Um, so anyway, um, that land went up for sale in 2021, and then it was like, okay, 
we have got to um, try to purchase that. And so that's what we have been working on ever since then. Um, started a couple different like GoFundMe campaign, done a fundraiser. We um, have applied for some grants and, um, and are working to purchase that property and turn it into a nature park. Um, and this would just, you know, it would serve as a buffer for the existing trail and it then would expand the trail system, but also create kind of a gathering place. The trail um, has started becoming a, which is wonderful, like a, a destination. So we have, we have schools now that are coming to the trail for field trips. <laughs> you know, it is great. Um, and so this would provide a space for those people to come and, um, yeah. So Friends of Coates Bluff, that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And y'all have a Facebook page. If people are listening and they want to know more information, yeah. um, they can find you on Facebook there. And, yep. Um, there's and, a website Okay, as there's well. a website too. And you are still short, but you're moving forward and, and, and purchasing this last remaining acreage. Right. Um, okay, perfect. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift you somewhere yep. else. Um, so in preparing for today's discussion, I came across you describing, and you, you've used this term now, but I came across you describing some of your interests and in work as place-based education. For the lay people out there, I put myself in, in that group. What is place-based education? And what value could more place-based education have for our community? Right. Okay. Yeah. So maybe I'll talk about first the result of place-based education. So what that looks like is um, as a teacher, me using the trail and the history um, and the geography and the science and all these things um, f apply and we're learning from things that are right across the street, right? And so all of the concepts that we're gathering for learning these subjects um, that will then apply to the rest of the world, we're learning about them here first in a real tangible, experiential way. So now I really get it for one thing, but also we go back to talking about what that knowledge does. You know, one of the stories I tell with, or, or one of the stories I guess that talk about with, with um, some of my students, if you go to a party, right, and you walk in and you know nobody at the party, probably not gonna stay there very long. Right, you you're, you just the familiarity's not there, and unless you're a real go-getter and you know outgoing and all that kind of stuff, and you went there to meet somebody, me, I'm gone. You know, um, if you walk into the woods, and you even if you don't necessarily know the name, but you recognize the face, sycamore tree, oh this time of year, look what it's doing right now. You know, it's, um, the leaves are starting to drop. You know, oh my gosh, those are big leaves, you know, or picking them up, or the seed balls, look at these things. They got thousands of seeds on there and you can pull them apart and blow them like a dandelion, all these kind of things. You know, you walk in and if you even know just a handful of those, 
then all of a sudden it's a different room, so to speak, you know? Um, it, it informs and it makes you have a truly a sense of belonging. I belong here. I got, I know these friends. Um, so let me interrupt because, I mean, as I'm listening to you and I'm hearing this, I, I can't help but think, well, I mean, we, we, we struggle a lot in this community with exporting people and losing people. That's right. We don't really embrace our history. We don't really embrace our sense of place. So are you saying like the same analogy applies to that? Like if we don't know where we came from, if we don't, then why are we going to stay? What's the reason? What's the point? You know? Yeah. Um, and that sense of place, that's really what place-based education is all about. That's, that in a nutshell is you're developing your sense of place. And certainly at that, and then, and then you can have, you know, you, and you understand it far better what, that, what makes up a place. And now I have an even greater appreciation when I learn about other places. Like I can understand, I have the context to, and everything else. So it's, a, it's not only a very effective way of teaching subjects and things like that as a teacher, but it also, it leads from developing that sense of place and then all of a sudden um, from getting to know it, then I start um, having that um, familiarity that becomes something that hopefully that I uh, love. And then from there, I, maybe I have a devotion to it because that, and then from there, I have a reason to take care of it. And we miss that step all the time. We're asking kids all the time. We're asking parent adults all the time. We have all of these keep Shreveport clean things. We don't have the, we've missed everything in the middle. There's not, the relationship is not there. There's no reason to care. You, so it, that it takes that experiential direct contact to, to develop that relationship. And then you can ask somebody, hey, you've been to that, you, that, whoa, you've been on that bayou. Don't throw that on the street there and there and then all of a sudden whoa right I didn't know that went there you know like that when that goes through the storm drain on the curb and goes into the waterway but if you've been there and then you know where it's going it's a whole different ball game then you have a reason to care so yeah fascinating yeah well those are all my formal questions for okay. you but we have all the time in the world Is yeah there anything else that I didn't hit, uh, you and I have had a lot of offline conversations, so I want to make sure that um, I'm giving you the space and time to talk about anything that may be top of mind or important to you that I glanced over. <clears throat> yeah, so I, um, obviously, I love Shreveport, um, and I have some real tangible reasons um, f for, for, for doing that now. Um, and I think it's really important, like you say, to understand where is the disconnect? Why are, why are people not feeling connected, um, not wanting to stay? So I think that that's a really important thing. I've also asked myself over the years of living here, first as an outsider coming in, then living here long enough to be like, hmm, what are we missing? Like, what, what, what's missing here? Why do we feel stuck? 
um, and we've had that kind of a conversation before. And I think it all of it goes back to relationships. Um, one of the things, and this is just me, this is just my my take, but there are some some real almost imperatives to me for growth here and becoming unstuck. One of them does point back to our, again, points back to our history, knowing where we came from so that we can know where we're going. You can't if you don't know where you've come from. And that really starts partially with the Caddo Indians. Like, I believe that doing a public land acknowledgement um, here would do our city some real good. Um, you can ask a lot of um, kids and a lot of adults, frankly, why is it called Caddo Parish? Couldn't tell you. That's a disconnect, you know? So going back that far, um, right now there's a project that I believe going on that, that I believe, and you'll end up having a conversation about this in the future, but a civil rights project being started here. That feels like an imperative to me. That's got to happen. That truth has got to be told. Um, the whole truth, you know, and, um, and so I'm, I feel like that work that's been, that's being done now is, um, I'm very grateful for that because I know that that's one piece to it. That's one piece to it. Um, repairing our relationship with the Red River, that feels imperative to me. It is why we're here, you know, and it's what continues. It is literally our lifeblood here. And so repairing that relationship, respecting it, honoring it, um, knowing that by enjoying it, we are taking care of it because we're taking care of ourselves in the process. So that is another one for me. And then finally is just this place-based approach, you know, that um, we have got to have that sense of place. When, you know, I was a part of the community advisory group, I think is what it was called for the master planning process. And there were several of us that were working on that. And what we knew was that, what we recognized was that Shreveport just did not have a positive self-identity at all. In fact, we often referred to ourselves as being dirty and dangerous, just like the river. Hmm, <laughs> you know? Um, and so in order to uh, have a different sense of place, it will take that kind of experiential um, learning to do it. And um, we are in an incredible place, you know? It really is a remarkable, um, the history and the natural history. Um, so, and I'll end with a video that when we first started our GoFundMe campaign, we had to create a video for that. And the video ended with a poem by a poet named Devorah Major. And it's called, We Are This Place. Um, and that is something that for me on a 
personal level and on a professional level um, because I talk with my students about this now that um, if we recognize ourselves as this place without the disconnect like the environment is the other out there but we are the environment couple, one, one of the things about that is that it's very empowering actually because and our kids have to hear this today there are so many environmental crises going on if the environment becomes something that's out there it's out of my control something I can't do anything about it's completely overwhelming me our kids are getting that message all the time the environments out there and there ain't nothing you can do about it well as soon as I say I am the environment then as soon as I start taking care of myself my basic needs are being met and I'm getting the kind of exposure that I need to the outdoor to the outside world the natural world um, I have a sense of belonging my gifts are being shared in the community I feel a value I no longer feel disposable all of these things um, then um, then God, I got fired so fired up I forgot where I was going then that sense of place here's where I was going when it feels overwhelming and I know I said this already but I recognize that we are this place we are the environment then in, then in that moment when I take care of myself, I am taking care of the environment. Okay, I wanted to make sure. I think I already said that. But that's a big one for me. So that video ends with that poem. Um, we are this place. We must dream it well. <laughs>